0: Welcome back, folks, for a special episode of Alpha Control, a Lost in Space podcast. Today I'm flying the Jupiter 2 solo without my trusty co host Kurt, but that's because we're welcoming back a very special guest, Mr. Jeff Bond. Jeff is an accomplished author, music critic, and album producer. He's written several books on sci fi related topics, including The Music of Star Trek, The Art of Star Trek, The Kelvin Timeline. The World of Orville, and of course, The Fantasy Worlds of Irwin Allen, the deluxe 600-page limited-edition coffee table book which takes readers on a visual journey through the mind and career of legendary producer Irwin Allen. Mr. Bond is originally from Ohio and studied creative writing at Bowling Green State University, after which he pursued his career as a movie magazine reporter. Jeff's knowledge of film and TV music scores and their creators dates back to the 1990s when he served as a senior editor for Film Score Monthly. As a freelance writer, he has written articles for The Hollywood Reporter, Geek Monthly, and Cinefantastique magazine. From 2003 to 2006, Jeff served as senior editor at CFQ, the latter-day revival of Cinefantastique. In addition... Jeff has written hundreds of movie and television soundtrack liner note booklets as an editor for g Crescendo Records, Verice Saraband Records, and La, La Land Records. Notably for us, Jeff, along with his colleague Neil Bulk, was album producer on the beautiful Lost in Space 50th Anniversary Soundtrack Collection and the Land of the Giants 50th Anniversary Soundtrack Collection. Now, his latest project, which he teased for us last time, is the recently released four-disc Voyage to the Bottom of the Sea original television soundtrack collection. And boy, does it sound great. Just like last time he was on the show, Jeff was extremely generous with his time. In fact, the focus of this interview was supposed to be Jeff's new Voyage to the Bottom of the Sea soundtrack. However, I couldn't resist asking about his recently published book, Star Trek The Motion Picture, The Art and Visual Effects. It's a film I've been fascinated with since it premiered back in 1979. So before I knew it, we'd done an entire show without talking about the Voyage soundtrack. As a result, I've decided once again to split our conversation into two Calling Alpha Control special interviews. In this one, we'll talk about his beautiful new Star Trek coffee table book, and I'll save the Voyage discussion for a future episode, so stay tuned for that. But for now... Sit back, relax, and enjoy this first of two power-packed interviews with author and soundtrack producer Jeff Bond. Hey, Jeff Bond, sir. Welcome back to Alpha Control. It's uh, it's really a pleasure to have you on yet again.
1: Thanks for having me again.
0: You know, it's been a little over a year since we spoke last, and you've been a busy man as usual. I don't know, do you ever get any sleep? I'm just wondering because uh, you... You've got this new
1: actually. Uh, since we have having a global pandemic, I find I'm getting quite a lot of sleep. Uh-huh. Uh, normally, I was getting up at like six thirty in the morning because we had to get our kids off to school, and now they're home. Sure. Uh, so we kind of crawl out of bed about eight now, which is much nicer because I enjoy sleeping.
0: Well, that's the upside of this thing. It's just been a crazy situation since the virus broke out. But you know, the thing is, you, you were on last time we spent. Oh, gosh, we spent about an hour talking about that wonderful Irwin Allen book that you put out, and then another hour or so talking about Season 2 Lost in Space music and the uh, Land of the Giants soundtrack, which congratulations on the book, by the way. I see that that sold out, and... <laughs> The Land of the Giants soundtrack collection is sold out. That's amazing.
1: Yeah, yeah. I'm glad to see that since uh, set uh, definitely got some complaints because of sort of the limitations we had in putting that together. So I'm happy to see that that's sold out. Yeah. It's not as easy. The demographic for this is shrinking, plus just the record business is changing. Mm-hmm. And uh, a lot of people expect that they should have all their music for free and don't really pay attention to physical product as much now. Mm -hmm. So, you know, these companies, for doing something like Land of the Giants, it's a a smaller market that has to be, you know, carefully targeted. So where 20 years ago we might have done 3,000 of those, now most of these sets are limited to 1,000 or 1,500. Right. And uh so it's it's important that they all sell.
0: So Yeah, it's the nature of the business, I guess, but I'm kicking myself for not buying more copies of everything that you've put out. When I saw the Land of the Giants soundtrack was sold out on La, La Land. I went to Amazon, and some guy's selling... I guess he bought several of them. He's selling them for, I think, twice what they went for, originally.
1: Oh, really? So, so there's a more... Well, I-, I think I probably have a few copies of it, uh, <laughs> if, if you haven't already sprung for that.
0: Oh, I've, I've got it. I've got it. But, you know, it's funny. And the book the same way. I, I did buy two copies of that, but I gave one away as a gift to another friend. But... Uh, I think I should have bought another copy in reserve, but I've learned my lesson, your new project that I want to touch on briefly, that beautiful book published by Titan that just got released this week. Star Trek, the motion picture, the art and visual effects. Wow, that's a great one. I don't put these coffee table books on coffee tables because I'm afraid somebody will...
1: <laughs> will a coffee on that.
0: Exactly. But I did buy two of those, so I'm keeping one shrink-wrapped for future posterity. But that's beautiful. So I've learned my lesson, though. I'm, I'm going to stock up when these things come out.
1: <laughs> yeah, that uh, I'm really happy with that project. I worked on that with uh, my friend Gene Kazicki, who's a, a visual effects artist and producer, and... He's a member of the Visual Effects Society, and he's a great historian and archivist of uh, kind of the history of visual effects. And he knew where all the bodies were buried Mm. on on Star Trek The Motion Picture, and there were many bodies buried on that film. It was pretty much a no-brainer. We wanted to have it out, and I think the publisher wanted to have it out for the anniversary of the movie in 2019. And, uh, it wound up getting out a little later. Of that some of that was due to the pandemic, mm-hmm. uh, and their schedule, but it, it was an obvious thing to do. There had never been a real, uh, in-depth book with a visual component to look at that movie, which is, you know, certainly one of the most interesting and impressive of all the Star Trek movies in terms of its visuals. And, and it, it has a fascinating history. Um, You know, as the first Star Trek movie, all the development and the kind of different versions of what that could have been. uh, And then also the whole problem with the original special effects company that was, you know, eventually failed to deliver Mm -hmm. enough or or really any footage uh, in the time allotted and had to be fired. So There's a great oral history called Return to Tomorrow uh, by Preston Neal Jones that is invaluable if you want to learn about what happened in that movie. It was all interviews conducted right at the time that the movie was actually being made uh, that was supposed to go into an issue of Cinefantastique, uh, and that never happened, and then uh, it was published years later. And it's an incredible book, but it literally has no artwork. There's right. no, Other than the cover painting, there's no images from the film. And so it's somewhat incomplete. So, you know, we were inspired by that. And in fact, we used some quotes from Preston's book because uh, obviously there were people who were no longer alive and a few that we weren't able to track down. So we incorporated some uh, interview material from Preston's book, in our book, and then conducted our, our own interviews. And it was a great experience. Uh, you know, Sid Mead, who did all the kind of futuristic design for Blade Runner and Tron and all kinds of other movies, aliens, you know, he's probably the greatest artist, if certainly one of the all-time greatest science fiction artists, um, you know, he contributed the designs for Viger yeah. in, in Star Trek, the motion picture, which is, you know, one of the most fascinating and, and memorable aspects of that movie. I had spoken to him on another project uh, probably 15 or more years ago and you know we really wanted to talk to him for this project and you know we found out as we were setting up interviews that he was ill with cancer oh,
0: boy.
1: and uh i did wind up talking to him initially he was just not going to be available and then he did make time later and he wound up dying a few months after we had finished the book but well before the book was published, so you know I felt very lucky to have gotten another conversation with him. We had a great time talking with people like Andy Probert and and uh, Richard Taylor. Probably the most important thing about the book, and you know, I don't want to belabor this because I know this interview is not just about this book. But you know, Preston Neal Jones had not been able to talk to Doug Trumbull for his original book and the article he was planning because uh, probably from a combination of Trumbull just being too swamped with actually finishing the film, and and I think it, it, you know, it was not something that Doug Trumbull really was interested in talking about (laughs) at the time it was you know at the time a pretty mixed up production with a lot of problems and it was something that he was reluctant to work on and it turned down originally when he'd been approached to do it and kind of got dragged somewhat kicking and screaming to work on it after robert abel and associates left the productions So, you know, getting the Trumbull to comment about it was really important. And then the other person who I thought was not involved in those original interviews with Preston Neal Jones and who I, I thought was a, a very unsung contributor to the film was Richard Taylor. Right. Uh, Richard Taylor worked on Tron and, and other movies. And what I think is critically important about his work and, and Robert Abel's contribution to the film is that you know most people just assume if they know about this at all that you know robert abel and associates was a effects company that got hired to do star trek and the motion Picture and then they were fired because they didn't do the work right and that's really all most people know about that but the artists a number of you know concept artists and uh visual effects artists like richard taylor contributed you know all the groundwork and original conceptual designs for the Enterprise and a lot of the other familiar elements of the film. And most people don't know what Abel and Associates really did in the 70s. And there were really no major mind-blowing visual effects movies in the 70s until Star Wars. And so all anybody had to look at was uh, 2001, Space Odyssey, and that was basically the landmark visual effects film. And it was a big-budget movie, and there were really no major big-budget science fiction movies made after that until Star Wars. You know, there were things like Logan's Run or King Kong, but those were, you know, made in the studio system with uh, kind of venerable (laughs) uh, studio special effects artists done in very traditional ways. So while they tried to push, you know, the envelope to the extent that they could... All those effects were the same kind of effects that you would look at in other movies. And when you watched them, you could really pick apart how they were done uh, for the most part. What was really mind-blowing in visual effects at the time was being done on television. for ABC and Levi's Jeans commercials. Yeah. And a lot of that work was done by Abel & Associates. Tuesday Movie of the Week. They were doing this kind of streak scan photography that Douglas Trumbull and other people had developed for 2001 they're doing logos for like you know the abc tuesday night movie or movie of the week abc presents tuesday movie of the week the abc sunday night movie had this great kind of neon glowing marquee uh animated opening
2: abc sunday television premiere motion picture the ABC Sunday night movie
1: come on old trademark time for your walk and then there was this Levi's commercial where they're walking you know the Levi's <laughs> logo down again with, with the same Levi's blue jeans worn by this man Hey, all this totally surreal environment freewheeling kiddos are wearing them too And what a surprise. You know, they were truly staggering. That's right, little trademark. Levi's don't have to be blue, just have to be good. There were also a bunch of uh, ads for 7-Up. 7-Up, 7-Up,
2: we see the light of 7-Up.
1: That would show, you know, this kind of woman transformed into a butterfly with all these sparkling lens flares and everything. And, you know, to watch those things in the 70s, it was beyond anything in, that was going on in film. Very
0: and, psychedelic.
1: <laughs> you know, Robert Abel and associates and, and Richard Taylor were responsible for that look. And Richard Taylor stuck with... Uh, the production He did eventually leave, but a, a little bit after uh, Abel was fired, I think. But he, you know, really oversaw the look of the Enterprise and, uh, you know, the whole idea of the Enterprise being covered with this kind of, um, you know, prismatic, uh, reflective paint job and, and having these kind of blue and magenta neon light systems on it. Right. So the whole look of that was kind of overseen by Richard Taylor, and you know, Andy Probert finalized all those designs and contributed, to, you know, a lot of the vehicles and hardware that you see too. But the kind of that whole kind of neon like '70s aesthetic, uh, I think, was really pushed by Richard Taylor, and. That became a huge influence It's you know, Star Trek movies, the whole look of the Enterprise. Oh, yeah. You know, every starship, you know, Starfleet ship that you saw after that was it was influenced by that look. And you still see that in the J.J. J. Abrams movies, All the whole reflectivity of the Enterprise and the kind of blue, neon blue and gray and silver color schemes. So I think all that was a big influence from Richard Taylor and Bob Abel, and that that had all been, I think, kind of forgotten in the fallout from the movie over the years. And it's still a big influence on film, and I, that's what was most exciting to me. You know, we were sitting in a room with Richard Taylor when he started talking about doing all these animated logos for um, ABC, and, and it was stuff I had grown up just being blown away by as a kid and I didn't I had no idea who had ever done it right so you know to have him talking about that stuff was really exciting for me
0: wow it's great to be speaking again with author and lost in space soundtrack producer Jeff Bond his knowledge about the music and art of classic sci-fi TV and films is truly impressive he's got more to share about his beautiful new book on the art and visual effects of Star Trek The Motion Picture. So sit tight for the second half of our conversation with Jeff Bond.
1: So the book also seems to be you know very well received it should have been twice as long at least and we you know we tried to get it to get more pages it, i did another book on the the j.j J. abrams star trek movies right. uh, for titan and that's three movies and it's the same size and the same page count as the book on star trek the motion picture so theoretically we got three times as much space as we might have but it's just such a, a massive subject. But at least finally there is an official, you know, real visual book about that. And um, so it, it was a real, another labor of love project. And <laughs> not yeah. to go on for 20 minutes, but you know, between this and the Irwin Allen book and the Voice at the Bottom of the Sea, I've been very, very lucky. Uh, you know, you I think you said earlier, you know, that I put this stuff out. I, I'm not responsible for putting it out. It's different publishers and La, La Land Records and other labels that actually spend the money and, and right. get this stuff. And I've been incredibly lucky that I get to be involved with this stuff and I get paid for, you know, writing liner notes or writing books or, you know, helping to pick music on some of these releases.
0: Well, you must really feel blessed because, you know, if you had just done one of these projects in a career, you'd have to count yourself as, you know, incredibly lucky, but to have done all of these. And i got to say about this book, the Star Trek book, you know, again, not to go on too far about it, but I am in the vocal minority, I guess, of people that absolutely love Star Trek, the motion picture. I still remember that Christmas in 1979,
2: going to see it. The human adventure is just beginning. And I went back to see it two or three more times. William Shatner. Take us out. Is Captain James T. Kirk. Leonard Nimoy is Mr. Spock. DeForest Kelly is Dr. Leonard Bones McCoy. James Doohan is Lieutenant Commander Montgomery Scott. George Takei is Lieutenant Commander Sulu. Majel Barrett is Dr. Christine Chapel. Koenig is Lieutenant Pavel Chekhov. Michelle Nichols is Lieutenant Commander Uhura. Stephen Collins is Commander Willard Decker. Persis Kambata is Lieutenant Ilya.
0: And I have to say, it's still my favorite Star Trek feature film. It's probably not the best of the Star Trek movies, but it's my personal favorite.
2: Star Trek. The motion picture. Gene Roddenberry's production of a Robert Wise film. Coming this Christmas from Paramount.
0: And, you know, sometimes I have a hard time explaining exactly why that is, but... Last year, for the 40th anniversary, uh, Fathom did that uh, special screening. My wife and I went to see that, and I hadn't seen it on a big screen probably since 1979 or early 1980, something like that. And, you you know, by the way, I just have to say, I I married the right girl because my wife, (laughs) she went with me to see it. And, you know, she liked it, and I thought, you know, this is really, I've watched that thing on DVD and VHS when I had it a million times, but this is really the only cinematic in my opinion, really truly cinematic of the original Star Trek feature films. And it's just, it really yeah. still holds up to me, even with all the little warts and things that people will criticize it for. I, I just i just love that film. I've got my uh, framed uh, Bob Peak one-sheet poster in the, my office. That's really the only artwork I have. And I still have my copies of the old... Cinefix number one and two magazines, and I can't get enough of this stuff. So thank you for putting this book out. It, you said it was an impossible job in your in your forward to the book, but I'm glad you two overcame that uh, that challenge, and it's finally in my hands, and I couldn't be more delighted.
1: Yeah, it's funny. I think that the film is now you know getting much more of its due. It, obviously, you know, you know when that came out, for one thing, it was the first major motion picture that was ever made from a TV. There had been other movies made from TV shows, but they were basically B-movies. They were done usually to sell packages of TV shows overseas. Like uh, there was a McHale's Navy movie in the mm. 60s and, and a Batman movie. They usually had a little bit more money and could do more lo- location shooting, but they were not big epic you know, productions. So, you know, there was a lot of excitement about that movie coming out in 1979 from fans. They had not seen any Star Trek production other than a cartoon, you know, in 10 years. So there was a huge amount of pent up demand for that movie. But at the same time, it was not exactly what a lot of people expected. It was, you know, for critics, uh, I think a lot of critics felt like they were slumming to have to even review a movie based on a TV show. And it's not what people expected because it was a, you know, it attempted to be much more thoughtful. It's basically probably the only, other than maybe Close Encounters, it's the only kind of pacifist uh, space movie from that era. uh, Because the space movies were all about, you know, Star Wars, space battles. Um, but that's why I think it holds up now better. I, I remember being profoundly disappointed by you know I was uh, 18 I, or 19 when I saw it and I, I was expecting a much, I was expecting something more like the show that I loved you know I wanted to see much more conflict between the characters and much more action um, and I sort of didn't get what was going on in the movie It seemed pretty pretty flat but I wound up you know I've seen it countless times over the years and now it seems very daring because you know once they made The Wrath of Khan every movie after Mm -hmm. that even the later Next Generation movies and the J.J. Abrams movies they're all basically just remakes of The Wrath of Khan where you have an angry villain out for Mm -hmm. revenge and you know the crew of the Enterprise has to stop (sighs) them Um, and Star Trek Motion Picture was not about that, and it, it's the only one of the Star Trek movies that took the show's idea, which was, you know, present something that might seem initially to be frightening or or threatening, and then have the crew actually understand it.
0: Correct. Find
1: out what its, its uh, motivations are, and then reaching an agreement with it. And that's it's hard to do in a film. Right. And... It's not doesn't lead to as, as instant uh, audience satisfaction as as you might want in a mega budget blockbuster movie, but that that's what makes the movie now really seem to be incredibly daring and uh, unique. So I, I agree. It's sort of it's still probably the only kind of true Star Trek movie that actually does what the idea of the original series. Was. Um, and, uh, you know, there's Facebook groups devoted to it now. Mm-hmm. It does really seem like there's been a big shift in perception of it. also uh, people look at it the same way that they do with 2001 a lot of you know 2001 is an acknowledged classic movie it's considered you know one of the greatest movies ever made but there are lots of people who hate it because they find it boring Mm -hmm. Star Trek the motion picture I, I don't think is an artistic achievement on the level of 2001 not anywhere near it but it's similar in that it's not about action it is a. Uh,
0: it's an idea. More, yeah, yeah it's,
1: it's more of an idea movie.
0: And an experience too, you know. That I think yeah. maybe that yeah, was what. Yeah, it's an uh,
1: immersive yes. visual and, and, and musical experience, oh. which was is also was inspired by two thousand one and and a little bit from Star Wars. You know, Star Wars had a, a big score that became a, you know a gold record and was hugely popular. So when they finally made the decision to make Star Trek uh, as a, a movie and it went back and forth you know they started in like mid 70s it was going to be a movie with made by Philip Kaufman which I would love to have seen but sure. they never really figured out what the story to that was gonna be and then it was you know gonna be a TV series for a while and then after Star Wars blew up they realized okay there's money to be made with this as a movie But when they did that the, probably the first name artist that they hired for the movie was Jerry Goldsmith. And there's memos, you know, that they wrote talking about how it was an opportunity for music to be at the forefront of the movie and have whole sequences that were really driven by music. And you know, that was because of Star Wars because they knew if we do that we can have a big album soundtrack album and make money from that too but it also you know led to you know one of the all-time great uh movie scores and if nothing else if you went to star trek the motion picture you got a great audio visual experience you may or may not have been really engaged in the story but you it was sort of a, a immersive ride you know where you felt like you were outside the enterprise you were inside the enterprise mm-hmm. and then you were in, inside Viger and surrounded by all this amazing artistry and then all this incredible sound in terms of of the score. So it still stands up as a pretty unique experience, I think.
0: Well, it absolutely does. And it really got you right from the beginning, that whole opening sequence with the Klingon ships, Mm -hmm. the three Klingon ships coming towards you, and uh, the trip around the Enterprise. That was literally, like you say, a, a beautiful audio-visual experience. No dialogue. Yeah. I, I can't remember how long that piece lasts, but it's...
1: About five minutes. I want more. Uh, <laughs> I keep thinking. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. It's, well, the, you know, what happened with also with the score was they were finishing visual effects so late in the process that they did not have time to edit uh, a lot of that footage. So, it, you know, it sort of came in unedited it's like this is all the footage we have Mm -hmm. so that sequence probably wouldn't have been five minutes if they'd had more time
2: Mm -hmm.
1: um and uh so that actually became a big opportunity for the score you know it, it allowed goldsmith to write more developed pieces and you know write these kind of big long concert compositions for the movie couple of things i wish we could have gotten into the book one is we put in a bunch of stuff from the philip kaufman version which was called planet of titans planet of titans yeah and planet and the one of the people who was working on that initially was this guy named Derek meddings who used to do all the old jerry anderson yeah uh, super Marionation nation shows and was a you know expert in miniatures and he had done all a bunch of sketches for, like, basically, I think the Enterprise crashed on a planet or these um, astronauts on these kind of space shuttles out in space, like, tending to the Enterprise, and that would have all been done with miniatures and with kind of like little puppet figures uh, manipulated by wires, but he was incredibly good. He did a, a lot of the miniature work for the James Bond movies. It would have been a completely different approach to miniatures, but there probably would have been some spectacular effects. And uh, we we were able to get the production designer Ken Adam, who you know worked on the James Bond films, and he was on this. We were able to get sketches from him and Ralph McQuarrie, obviously who worked on Star Wars, right. did, did a lot of spaceship uh, design and concept paintings and drawings of the Enterprise. We got all that stuff, but there was some really fascinating. Uh, Pieces of artwork done by Derek Meddings to show what kind of effects he was going to do. And Adam and Meddings then wound up working on Moonraker, the James Bond movie, which was a big space movie with a space station and, you know, all this big action sequence with astronauts, you know, firing at each other in a weird way that came out the same year that star trek the motion picture did and you can sort of see what visual effects might have looked like in star trek the motion picture if you look at moonraker mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. um and the other thing not to go on even longer with this but the for the klingon sequence there's a piece of video that was put up in the past year where they showed some additional shots that they didn't wound up not using on the Klingon sequence. And there's a great shot of uh, you kind of looking over the back of one of the Klingon ships while the other two in the background are all firing, you know, photon torpedoes. In the movie, only one of the ships ever fires. And when I saw this, you know, I was just like about fell off my chair because I would have fallen out of my chair if I had seen that in a theater to see like the, because that was the most exciting part of the movie for me was that whole sequence and
0: um, yeah. they,
1: they wound up redoing it you know and re-editing it so that it's just one ship firing <laughs> Apparently, it made the sequence work better. You know, this was a... A
0: A promo reel for Apogee, I think, wasn't it? Something um,
1: like that? I think John Dykstra's Apogee, yeah, effects reel. And uh, it was just on video, uh, and then we were hoping, you know, we had a pipe dream that maybe we could track down this original reel and get some high-res images of that sequence, but it was impossible. And you can't pull, like, frames of things like that off of YouTube and put them in a book because you'll only be able to run them the size of a postage stamp and the quality even on your full screen is not that great so we just never were able to find the right elements for it.
0: When that footage showed up on YouTube, I had to really scratch my head because I was like I mean, I was blown away as as you were, but I thought they basically used every frame of special effects yeah, footage. Yeah, that's what I
1: thought. I thought initially uh, that this was a fake because uh, and, and you do see people putting up, and but it's very obvious because they uh, you know, do the effects with uh, CG right. apps, and and so everything looks super clean, and you can always tell when it's done that way. But when I initially thought that this was some kind of uh, scam or something that, you know, uh, a hoax that someone was trying to claim that they'd found, you know, undiscovered footage from this, because the Klingon sequence, I think, was the very last thing finished, uh, i knew how a lot of the other effects sequences had not been able to be edited so i was like if those couldn't be edited how you know right. how could they possibly have had the time but but i guess that they must have been sort of revisiting and ed- editing as they were shooting things and creating things so they were able to actually able to finesse a bit more mm-hmm. and it's always considered to be you know with a, one of the strongest uh, sequences in the movie, so yeah. it shows that they were able to do more work on that.
0: Yeah, well, it, they were trying to top what Dykstra had done with Star Wars—the opening of that, yeah. where you get the, uh, you know, yep. Star Destroyer coming in—and I think it's a beautiful sequence. But it just surprised me to see that footage that I'd never seen before, and it makes you wonder: Is there, yeah,
1: a- anything was, else there was, out there? <laughs> you know? I know, yeah, that yeah. was a, it was a very big deal when that happened. And
0: don't forget, Star Trek: The Motion Picture introduced the new look of the Klingons. That's also uh, yep. talked about in your book. Yeah. Like I said, I've I've only had the book for a couple of days, so I'm just digging into it. But it looks beautiful. You've got some great photographs I've never seen before. Lots of artwork.
1: Yeah, Gene Kozicki has a great collection of his own uh, of images and artworks in that film, and then. Paramount, I think, gave Gene a hard drive with something like 25,000 images on it, and and he had to go through it. And many of these were just, uh, you know, on-set photos of uh, people doing costume tests and stuff, but... To go through and actually get some kind of idea of what was there in a hard drive full of 25,000 photos, you know, was a huge undertaking for Gene. And, you know, Gene did all the captions and, uh, you know, really organized all of our artwork for this. So I give Gene, you know, about 75% of the credit for the book. I, I wrote all the main text and did uh, a lot of the interviews. I think we probably split the interviews about 50-50, mm-hmm. but it could not have been done without Gene's input and work. Wow.
0: Well, that's great. It's beautiful. Congratulations again. I, I'm guessing this is another limited edition release. Do you know how many they're going
1: gonna... uh, to... That's a good question. Uh, Titan is a little bit more, and, and I, I would suspect that books... Might have a slightly bigger audience than soundtrack CDs. Mm. Um, see, like I said, I've seen more about this book on Facebook than any book that I've ever worked on. That's cool. Um, so I would have to think, and I even saw like some people were saying that their you know Amazon shipments got slightly delayed in some cases, and I was kind of theorizing whether that was because of there was a lot of demand for it, but mm. we we never really find out. I have no idea what kind of runs Titan does or how much they ultimately sell, but they're similar to the record labels in that they have, uh, you know, mathematically deduced exactly what their audience is on any of these things, and they tailor their production, you know, to do that and on. I'm sure a very narrow margin, so that they that these are profitable for them, but they're not New York Times bestsellers for the most part.
0: Well, I did get mine from Amazon. Is that, would you say that's the best place to order it or?
1: Yeah. Okay. Yeah. it's. Easy, but you can also get at them. I mean, one nice thing is uh, they're in Barnes & Noble, so I can actually go to my Barnes & Noble and see have a book in there. There you go. Uh, yeah, I'd say Amazon and Barnes & Noble are probably the two most high-profile vendors of this.
0: That's great. That's great. Well, one last Star Trek question, then we've got to start talking about uh, Irwin Allen stuff here. (laughs) Um, Okay. Do you think we're going to get a 4K release of this on Blu-ray, Star Trek, the motion picture? That is a
1: good question. Uh, The problem is that it's... it's a real either or situation in terms of how the pandemic has affected things, because on the one hand, it's obviously people are sitting at home on their thumbs and actually Mm. need a lot of content and, uh, entertainment options. Uh, but on the other hand, these studios are, you know, devastated by the loss of revenue from uh, theaters, and so uh, it's weird because, I, and I don't know how it's all going to shake out. But you know, there was at least one Irwin Allen-related project for this record label I worked for that was pretty much out of the question until the pandemic hit. And then, because approvals from the studios were taking much longer because there have been so many staffing cuts. But the labels still need to have product out there to keep you know revenue coming in, so they were actually had me look into maybe doing an, another Erwin Allen project that they weren't initially thinking of, and so that became more of a possibility but for S- Star Trek, it seemed like they were moving towards maybe doing you know a special edition version of that and and doing uh you know upgrading the the director's cut. Revised too. visual effects yeah. so that were in the director's cut and so that they could put that out in 4K. That's always been a very expensive proposition, and it seemed like there was some movement in that direction, but I'm not sure how, where it's at now. Mm-hmm. I think that there's been a, a reset, and also, you know, there's um, Paramount and CBS are kind of getting back together, whereas they were sort of operating separately. So it's a very strange environment. You know, you have the whole, this is not related to Star Trek, but you have, like, you know, Disney absorbing 20th Century Fox and Marvel. Uh, There's a lot of consolidation going on right now. And so far, it has not, like, destroyed a lot of these deals that are in place, like um, this record label is still working on Fox projects and you know, some of that is related to Irwin Allen projects and that does not seem to have been derailed by uh, Disney absorbing Fox. I'd say that Star Trek uh, in general is in flux a bit because of uh, Paramount and CBS uh, kind of getting back together and it's, it, I think it remains to be seen. It's not clear what's going to go on with Star Trek The Motion Picture. I mean, you know, physical media too, you know, Disney, in terms of like Blu-rays and and 4K discs of things, they have wiped out <laughs> any yeah. interest in doing a lot of their Fox catalog, which is really heartbreaking. Hopefully someone else can make deals to do that at, at some point, but um, some a lot of these larger conglomerations that maybe are less interested in getting physical product out because that scene is, is kind of old-fashioned and everything should be streaming now. Ugh. So it's not clear. But, but the, you know, it would be nice to get just the, for streaming a, an improved version of Star Trek motion picture. So hopefully something yeah. to that effect will happen.
0: You know, this is, I mean, it's business decisions, I get it and everything. But personally, you know, if I like something, I want to own the physical Property. I don't yeah. care. If, I don't care if I can stream it. I mean, it's nice to be able to do that. And even though I sometimes I stream, even though I've got the you know the discs, like you said, I've been consuming a lot more content with the uh, pandemic and everything. But you know. Uh, I would just like to see them do this for Star Trek The Motion Picture. I think it really deserves it. And, you know, if if they can only put it out in streaming, you know, then we'll keep our fingers crossed that they'll do, like, what happened with The War of the Worlds 4K. I just got a copy of that. I was so flummoxed when I couldn't get it originally, but I guess Criterion put that out. So that was really nice to see. So, all right, well, I know that people would love it if they got it, but uh, we'll just have to wait and see. This is We're in uncharted territory here.
1: Yeah, unclear at this point.
0: That was a blast speaking again with author and soundtrack producer Jeff Bond. Remember to stay tuned for part two of this special interview coming soon. Also, be sure to check out all of Jeff's works at the links in our show notes below. In the meantime, we will be back next time with another episode of Alpha Control, where Kurt and I will continue reviewing our beloved original Lost in Space. Until then... Take care, and we'll see you then. Thanks, fellow galactic castaways, for listening to the Alpha Control Podcast. Please leave your comments or questions on our Facebook page, Twitter, or email us at alphacontrolpodcast at gmail.com. Subscribe to the podcast via libsyn.com, that's L-I-B-S-Y-N.com, or through iTunes. If you like the show, please leave us a review as well. Thanks again, and we'll see you next week, same time, same channel.